Go ahead and if you've got a Bible nearby, go ahead and turn to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, that's in the uh, Old Testament. He's one of the so-called minor prophets, not minor because his message was any less uh, important or his ministry was less substantial, but simply because the book that he wrote is shorter. So um, toward the end of the Old Testament, but it's a... uh, uh, it's a powerful little verse. It uh, packs a, a, a big punch in terms of um, how we can understand the heart of God and um, and live in the way that he calls us to live. So Micah chapter 6, we're going to focus on verse 8, although I'm going to read for you verses uh, 6 through 8, just so there's a little bit of context. Uh, Micah's ministry in Israel uh, was during the period of the divided kingdoms. So under David and Solomon, the kingdom had been of Israel had been one unified nation. And, and then shortly after that, the nation split into the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Uh, and so Micah, uh, his ministry of prophecy was uh, sometime in the middle of the 8th century BC. Um, and so you have a, a divided nation and a nation, um, or really two nations, uh, who are called and covenanted as God's people, but who are living um, not according to his word. Uh, they, they've uh, turned to idols, and there's there's been a, a, a sort of a, a period of relative prosperity in the land. Um, and during that prosperity, there had been a, a, a wealthy upper class had emerged, and kind of along with the, the emergence of this wealthy class and the, the prosperity, there had also come along with that uh, some injustices, some some social inequities uh, that had been taking place uh, throughout the land, and uh, and God sends Micah uh, to uh, to call his people uh, to faithfulness. Uh, and so, let me uh, share my screen with you, and I'll put the uh, text up here for us. So let me read. Uh, so what what's been happening here right before this is God has essentially sort of made a a a, a charge against his people. Uh, for having um, been guilty of these these injustices and of uh, not worshiping him in the way that he called them to. And so then this verse, uh, verse 6, begins really a response from the mouth of the prophet Micah, but sort of on behalf of the people, like as though the people were uh, addressing God uh, in, in response to the charge. So look at, at verse 6. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There's the passage. Verse 8 is what we will focus on. But I think you can see that the, uh, the question that's asked uh, in verses 6 and 7 is essentially, you know, what is it that's going to please God? Um, and in, in a context where God's people are prone to uh, wander, to disobey, um, to um, worship idols, etc. Um, the questions asked here are something like, um, "Well, so can I make up for 
my wrongdoing by just doing even more in terms of sort of outward uh, worship, right? So, okay, how about maybe not one offering, but two offerings? Or, or what about uh, a whole bunch of offerings, right? Um, what, what, what about thousands, right? Would, would he be satisfied with thousands of rams? Or, or how about ten thousands of rivers of oil? Or if we're going to get real, real holy, um, what, what if I actually gave up my own child, right? Would, would God be appeased if I sort of ramped up my acts of sort of outward uh, devotion and, and ritual to the extent that I'm willing to give up even my own child? Uh, would that then appease this God? And God's answer to that question is, Beautiful and simple and strong uh, in, in verse 8. Uh, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So let's break this down just uh, a little bit at a time. So the first thing I want to point out is this phrase right here, this question really, the central question of the text. What does the Lord require of you? That is a really important question. Uh, God is our creator, and we are accountable to him. And not only is he our creator, he is our savior, right? We, we belong to him by God's grace in Jesus Christ. As, as God, remember, as God speaks here, he's not speaking to uh, a group of pagans, Right or even a broad mixed audience with some believers and some unbelievers. He's speaking to his covenant people. So Israel's already his by grace. God has already covenanted with them and made them, declared them to be his people. So when he speaks to his people and says, here's what the Lord requires of you, it means as the people of God, by grace, by covenant, what does God expect of us? And I think that's a really important question for, for Christians to ask. We should, we should uh, ask the question and we should orient our lives around its answer. As, as people who are accountable to him, both as our creator and as our savior, we belong to him by grace. What God requires of us is all important. It, is, it should frame the lives of our work, uh, excuse me, it should frame all of our lives and our relationships and our stewardships and our responsibilities and our money and our jobs and everything. What does the Lord require of us? The way that we relate to our fellow man. Don't miss the, the, this phrase at the very beginning of verse 8 either. He has told you. He has told you what is good. This is kind. This is uh, grace of God to give us revelation. He didn't have to. He could have said, he could have said, I have expectations. I have requirements of you, but you just got to figure out what they are and good luck. And sent us on some kind of a wild goose chase to figure out what uh, he intended for us to do or to be about. But he hasn't done that. He's told us. Don't overlook the grace of revelation, the grace of a word from God. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And so if we ask the question, God, what do you require of us? 
And we know and remember and recognize that God has spoken. God has told us what he requires of us. Then we ought to, um, we ought to listen very closely to what he says and pattern our lives after what he calls us to. Now, before we get into the meat of, uh, of that second half of the verse with those three particular commands, um, just let's talk just a little bit about, again, the, the, the context of this and the, the notion of if I kind of ramp up my devotion, um, will God be sort of satisfied with that? Um, I, I think just as he has this strong word of uh, exhortation and rebuke for his people Israel, through the prophet Micah, I think his, his ex, the word of exhortation that he might give to his people, the church, today, could be very similar. Um, God is not impressed with our attempts to appease him with external forms of worship and devotion. Just as he said uh, to Israel, uh, when you have failed to carry out the heart of my covenant, then your outward acts of worship are empty, right? We read uh, Amos 5, 23 and 24 earlier, where he says, away from me with the noise of your songs. When you play your harps and your guitars, I won't listen. Like, I don't want to hear your worship and your songs and your, your rituals of, of devotion and sacrifice. I'm not interested in those things to the extent that you are abandoning what it means to be my people. You're not living in light of my word and, uh, and, and in right relationship to me. I don't want your songs. You, remember, uh, you might remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, uh, Samuel rebuked Saul with these words, to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul had gotten himself into trouble by not listening to the word of the Lord through the prophet Samuel and had gone on and offered uh, a sacrifice. And then when Samuel showed up, he said, why have you done this? Uh, and the point was that Saul had not listened to the voice of God. He had gone about and done his own thing, even though what he was doing was an act of outward worship, right? Well, I was making a sacrifice, which is what we're supposed to do. And Saul said, does the Lord have as much pleasure in sacrifice as in obedience? And of course, the answer is no. He wants you to obey him. He wants you as his people to live in light of his word and under the authority of his word. And, and to the extent that we abandon that or we take ourselves out from under the authority of his word, we don't listen to him, we don't obey him, then our acts of devotion, our Sunday morning fervent singing and praying don't please him. He's tired of it away from me with the noise of your songs, he says. Um, James, in the New Testament, might say it like this. Faith without works is dead. I want to read for you uh, a few verses from James chapter 2. James 2, verses 14 through 17, he says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
And of course, James, as we know, is not promoting a sort of uh, salvation by works uh, theology there. He's simply saying that a, a faith that saves, a faith that is saving faith, will show itself in acts of obedience and particularly acts of love and justice. I think it's uh, interesting and, and relevant that in that very passage, James speaks of an issue of, uh, of social mercy, right? If there is a brother who doesn't have food to eat or clothing to wear, and you have all manner of well wishes for him, man, I hope things get better for you. Man, I'm really with you in that struggle. I really feel for you. But you don't clothe him or you don't feed him then what good is your faith, is what James says. Um, that's a strong word of rebuke to uh, Christians who at times are inclined to neglect matters of justice and righteousness and mercy, um, but meanwhile are full of words of kindness or, or words of well wishes. Um, you know, and, and in, in the context and in the light of the sort of racial tension in our country um, and, uh, and particular sort of acts of violence that, that erupt and, and all of these uh, responses like protests and riots and things happen. Um, I, one of the things that, I, that I'll hear, and that perhaps you've seen this as well if you've you know, been browsing social media or anything, from uh, people of color is we've kind of heard enough of the, I'm really sorry that that's happening, right? I really wish that things were better or, you know, like just kind of verbal expressions of, um, of, of sorrow or empathy um, without actions, without something being done to demonstrate solidarity, right? That we're not just uh, empathizing with you, but we're actually gonna join you in that, uh, in that struggle. And I and I, I want to hear that. Like I want I want to to take that seriously. I think we we should. Um, but again, outward acts of religious sort of devotion and worship, without hearts inclined toward God and His Word and lives that are actively obeying His commands, uh, don't please God and don't accomplish. Uh, really much of anything. And in fact, he's a, God is kind of annoyed by them, it seems, uh, in Amos 5, 23-24. So what does he require? What does he require of us? Three things. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. I don't want to spend a huge long time on this, um, but let, let me, let's look at these each uh, just a little bit. Do justice. Do justice, not think about justice, not value justice, not even love justice. It's interesting that he says do justice and love kindness. Um, do justice. What does that mean? Well, I think there's a couple of, there, there's a disclaimer to make in that in a fallen world and as fallen people, our experience and application of justice will always be, at best, incomplete. There is no such thing as perfect justice in a fallen world. There's a kingdom coming where there's perfect justice, but it's not here yet. It's been inaugurated, but it hasn't yet been fully realized. 
And so the world that we live in, marred and stained and broken by sin as it is, justice will always be, at best, incomplete. And at worst, an utter failure. And I think there's, there's situations all, all around us that demonstrate that, uh, the, the complete failure of justice. At times, of course, there are ways that justice is carried out to some measure. And to that extent, uh, and when we see that, we, we ought to rejoice and, and, and praise God that his heart of righteousness and his character and his justice are in some manner upheld. But there are so many other situations where that is not the case, um, where justice uh, fails. And in fact, injustice, the opposite of justice, is, uh, is perpetrated. And um, we need to be aware that the, that is the reality of the world that we live in, of uh, this fallen and broken world. The second thing I want to point out is to say that doing justice, oops, I'm making changes that I did not mean to, I apologize. Um, doing justice is necessarily a social, relational, horizontal endeavor, right? So me in my own house before God, if that's, if I don't ever look at anybody else or uh, interact with anybody else, it's just me and God, I can't do justice, right? Justice is not possible in that sense. Justice is necessarily um, a person-to-person, a social and, and relational reality. And so when God calls his people in the Old Testament and in the New to do justice uh, or to be just people, he is speaking of how we relate to others and particularly how we relate to those in our society who are oppressed or underprivileged. Um, I opened our time together this morning by reading from Psalm 103, which says, The Lord works justice for all who are oppressed. Well, what does it mean to work justice for the oppressed? It means to intentionally step in to the oppression and lift them out of it to work for the removal of the oppression and to lift them out of it. Now, of course, in the biggest, broadest um, sense, sort of spiritual sense, we've been oppressed by sin and the devil. And in Christ, God has released us from that oppression by defeating uh, death and hell on the cross and rising from the dead. And he's given us new life, right? Jesus said, who, who the Son has set free is free indeed. So in the ultimate sense, the oppression from which we've been freed is the oppression of sin. But we cannot read the Bible honestly and not come to the conclusion that God cares about the people around us who are experiencing oppression at a human level, at uh, social and societal and uh, even political levels. God cares about the, the plight of the poor and the oppressed and those who are underprivileged. He cares. And if we're going to care about, if we're going, excuse me, if we love God, we will care about what he cares about. So I think that's a, a, a key point to make here on the doing of justice. When God calls us to do justice, he calls us to do that because he cares about justice. 
He cares about his heart and his kingdom values, if you will, being pressed down into the world in which we live. Broken as it is, incomplete as that justice will ever be, he cares. And he wants us to care as well. And doing justice is more than merely not committing injustice, right? I think uh, it's easy for us to have a sort of a, a passive um, understanding here and go, well, you know, I'm not, I don't think that I'm really like actually perpetrating injustice. And so I guess that means I'm doing justice. Well, that's not the same thing. Um, also, I think sometimes we're blind to the ways that we unwittingly perpetrate or, or perpetuate cycles and systems uh, of, of injustice. And so I think we should be slow to sort of let ourselves off the hook uh, in, in that sense. But even so, doing justice is an active thing. It's a verb, right? To do justice. It's not just value justice. It's not just don't commit injustice. It's a proactive uh, effort. Um, it's not just privately affirming what seems just and frowning at what seems unjust. It is the active seeking of justice for the sake of someone else. That's what doing justice means. Uh, the late uh, Reformed theologian and, and biblical scholar Bruce Waltke, he said this, Justice is when you are in a socially superior position, and you step in and deliver the oppressed or weaker party from their foe. When you come to the aid of the weak, when you address the wrongs inflicted upon them, that's what it means to do justice. It means to use the position that you have in God's providence, whatever that is, whatever um, uh, privilege or position that you have, societally or economically or whatever it is, Use that position for the good of someone else who is uh, oppressed. That is doing justice. And that is one of the things, the chief things that God calls his people to do. I've told you what I want you to do, what I require of you. Here it is. Do justice. Which doesn't just mean sit on your couch and yell at the injustices in the world. It means Look at the injustices around you and work to change them. More on that later. Do justice. Friends, I do want to make, make the point here that um, I believe that racism uh, is a form of social injustice to the extent that uh, a person or a group of people or look, is looked down upon, or not even actively looked down upon, but sort of uh, marginalized somehow on the basis of their race or ethnicity, um, that is an injustice. It is a social inequity um, that, is, that is taking place. And I think that very many uh, of us, and listen, we're, we're, a, we're a white church, all right? Uh, so I'm speaking here to mostly white people. As a white person, uh, it's very easy for us to just be blind uh, to these issues uh, and to the fact that racism is still a, a problem 
not only in the sense that some individuals have strong racial animus, like our hatred toward people based on their race, but in so far as our systems in society are, are, all, are stacked against minorities. I don't have time uh, to, to like spell all of that out, um, but we'll talk a little bit more at the end in kind of a, uh, some applications and discussion time. Um, about some things that we might be able to do uh, to at least get uh, get on the right page about these things. And so racism and racial uh, marginalization uh, is, is a real problem. And I don't think, I don't think we can ignore it. We need to not ignore it. And if we're going to be faithful Christians, we need to apply the principles of justice to the issue of race. I don't mean to, to imply that, that racism is specifically what's being addressed in Micah 6, 8. Um, but I do think that Micah 6, 8 and the doing of justice must apply to the issues of racism and racial marginalization. Um, otherwise, what is it? Um, what is justice if, if, we, if we only, if we pick and choose which categories to apply it and which ones not to? Do justice. The second command is to love kindness. Love kindness. He doesn't merely say do kindness, right? Or, or, or acts of mercy. He says to love it. Interesting reversal. When it comes to justice, it's not just loving justice, it's doing justice. When it comes to kindness, it's not just doing kindness, it's loving kindness. That's what he tells us to do. Love kindness. He's aiming at our affections, He's actually commanding our affections to stir at the prospect of kindness, at the idea of mercy. We ought to think of mercy and kindness and love it, be warmed and moved and motivated and stirred by kindness. That's what he calls us to do. And of course, he knows that if our hearts are inclined in love toward mercy, then our heart's affections will be demonstrated in acts of kindness, right? So it's not enough to say just do kind things because you can do something that is a kind thing from a heart that is um, self-seeking, self-serving, right? I'm going to do this kind thing because it's going to make me look real good or it's going to maybe get me something that I want. We've been talking about the, the issue of motivations in our men's groups recently. Um, but if our hearts are inclined toward kindness, if we love kindness, then it will overflow in acts of kindness. And God knows that that's the case. Uh, John Bloom, writing for Desiring God in an article on this verse, he says this, this command is abstraction resistant. And abstraction being, that's just a nice idea. It's abstraction resistant. Loving kindness is a kind of loving, for love is kind, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And we can't love kindness without loving people. We might be able to get away with telling others we love justice without doing much justice. But it's very difficult to get away with saying we love kindness if others know us to often be harsh, defensive, self-centered, impatient, irritable, critical, or willing to step on people to get our way. We wear our love of kindness, or our lack of it, on our sleeves. <laughs> so love kindness. Do justice Love kindness. And then the final one is this walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with God. 
I don't think it's any coincidence that these exhortations to justice and kindness are followed by an exhortation to humility. If we examine ourselves honestly, we're likely to find ways that we are failing to seek out justice for the sake of others and failing to have our hearts stirred toward kindness and mercy to those around us. And as God reveals those failures to us, we will need the humility to repent, to receive his correction. When we examine our lives in terms of are we doing justice and are we loving kindness, God will show us, if we're asking honestly, God will show us ways that we are not, ways that we are misstepping or neglecting duties that he's called us to. And when he corrects us, we ought to repent. And repentance requires humility. So the humble walking with God, I think, is no coincidence on the heels of these strong exhortations to justice and kindness. Martin Luther, in his famous 95 Theses that he posted on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, um, the very first one said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The lifestyle of Christians should be repentance. That, That should characterize us. We should become aware of our sin and failures to follow God's commands and repent. Turn from it. Seek his way and his word. That should be what characterizes Christians as God's covenant people who are working for his kingdom. We ought to live lives of repentance and repentance requires humility and humility will call us to listen and to learn and to be, as James says somewhere else, slow to speak, quick to listen slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, in the face of such brokenness, in a world that is as fallen as it is, where these realities, where justice and mercy seem so uh, missed so often, not just broadly in society, but even among God's people and the way we think and talk and and relate on these matters. What is the hope? What is our hope for a better world? Let me take you to another passage of scripture in answer to that question. In Isaiah chapter 42, the prophet here points to the servant of Yahweh. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Friends, we live in a fallen world 
and our experience and application of justice will always be flawed, incomplete at best, and sometimes complete failure. But there is one, the servant of Yahweh, who will establish perfect justice. Jesus Christ, Yahweh's servant king, has already paid the penalty earned by our injustices, bearing in himself upon the cross the full measure of divine wrath against oppression, violence, racism, hatred, and injustice. We know that this servant king will establish an eternal kingdom where justice shall roll down like waters, as Amos said. And until then, let us pray as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And let's work in the strength of God's spirit to see that vision become reality. Let me make a few points of application, and then I'd like to open it uh, for some discussion. I'll ask a couple of questions. Um, here are a few applications. As we're thinking of applying the principles of justice to uh, the issue of race specifically and the racialization of our society. Number one, don't remain blind to racial inequality that exists in our society. Don't be quick to look away from uncomfortable truths. Um, I confess that just even just a few years ago, I was guilty probably in a pretty large way uh, of this kind of, of blindness. I think God has used my time in Baltimore over the last five-ish years. Uh, and, uh, and of course, we moved to Baltimore right on the heels of Freddie Gray and the, the riots uh, in the city in response to that uh, injustice. And um, so it was you know, top headlines uh, in Baltimore when we moved here. Uh, and, uh, and just in the time living in the community and, and speaking with neighbors and people of color, um, I, God has used that time to really kind of open my eyes to, to things that I've just been blind to. Uh, and I think it's very easy uh, for white Americans to just be blind to uh, these issues of racial inequality. Um, it, it just is the reality. And it's hard to even talk about it because people get offended when you suggest that maybe they're blind to something or ignorant of something, right? So even talking as a white person to other white people about race can be like fraught with landmines because nobody wants to really admit that maybe I've got this wrong or I haven't thought well about this or maybe the sound bites that I'm hearing from my favorite newscasters are maybe not all the way accurate. Um, and so... It's hard, it's touchy, it's sensitive, but we need to have, remember the humility, walk humbly with your God. We need to have the humility uh, to, to listen um, and to, to learn um, what we don't know. So don't remain blind. Um, if you don't think you're blind, you might be more blind than you think you are. Um, and if you've never really thought about it, and you're like, huh, I don't know, maybe there is more to this than I thought there was, that's a great place to start. Uh, don't stay blind and don't look away from uncomfortable truths, right? Uh, it's uncomfortable. Uh, and coming to terms with your own sort of complicity in, uh, in injustice is not a, a fun experience, right? It feels uh, convicting, as it should 
Don't run from conviction. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is grace. It's always grace. Um, don't look away. A second point of application is uh, more like uh, an answer to a question. A, qu- a question would be like, where do I start? So if you're hearing this kind of exhortation to justice and think about applying it to issues of race and you've never really thought through that or uh, you, you kind of like just don't know where to begin, um, what, what would it look like to do justice in terms of, uh, of race, uh, racial relations, etc.? Let me give you a few points here. Number one, get educated. Like, there's a big part of this is that is just, you need to start reading. Um, there's books and articles and lectures and sermons and all manner of things that have been really helpful to me uh, that I trust uh, could be helpful to you. And I know that there's more out there than I've seen or, or read. Uh, and I'll give you guys an opportunity at the end of our time to, to kind of share if there's any other kind of resource that you'd like to, to point us to. But I would highly recommend the book Just Mercy by uh, Brian Stevenson, who's the founder of Equal Justice Mission in, um, where is it? I can't remember where it is. It's in Alabama somewhere. Anyway, um, so anyway, uh, so Brian Stevenson founded Equal Justice Mission, and he does, uh, uh, he represents people on death row and other things. That's not the only thing he did, but that's kind of how he got started. Um, and, uh, and he's written an excellent book, uh, and he's a brother in the Lord, so he has he has a good uh, sort of uh, biblical worldview through which he, he views these issues. And he just he tells the story of some of his clients that he's seen, some of his own experience of uh, as a black man, some of his own experience of uh, racism and, and injustice, um, and you get a glimpse of uh, the the depths of these issues that are very easy for us to just look right past. Um, very, very good book. It's been made into a movie, but I would really encourage you. The movie's not bad, but please read the book and then watch the movie. If you're going to watch the movie, that'd just be my, my two cents. Um, I read a book a few years ago called Divided by Faith. This is a more academic book. It's a, uh, it's really a, a, a report, a book-length report on a, a lengthy survey of white and black evangelicals um, on questions of how they think about uh, race, how they think about sort of social problems and what they think are the solutions to social problems and all those kind of things, and demonstrates the fact that white Christians in a huge percentage think almost polar opposite different than black Christians on matters as simple as like what's wrong in the world. I mean, it's, it's so interesting, um, eye-opening. Um, divided by faith is what that book is called. I, I, I highly recommend that. Even uh, classic stuff like Martin Luther King's Letter from a Birmingham Jail. If you've never read Letter from a Birmingham Jail, read Letter from a Birmingham Jail. You can find the text online for free. I mean, it's like, and it's it's not just a fantastic piece of literature. It is high. It is it is a great example of of high moral thinking. Uh, and obviously applied to the issues of race. Uh, so I would highly recommend you read Martin Luther King's uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. There's also one more resource I'll point you to right now is a, a conference that the um, uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission put on a couple of years ago uh, on during the month of the 50th anniversary of, of King's assassination. It was called MLK 50. That was the name of this conference. Um, and there's a host of messages and panel discussions and, and things 
um, related to the topic, not just of Martin Luther King, but of civil rights and of racial justice and equality and, uh, and particularly how Christians, how the church ought to uh, respond and live in, in light of those things. And there's really, really good stuff there. Um, you can, I, I'll, I'll, I'll send out a link. I'll send an email later, maybe with some like, hey, here's some places you could start uh, and you can do with that what you will. But there's really good resources there. I especially, uh, I think as a, as a white guy and a, to a white uh, church audience here, I, I think I would strongly recommend probably Matt Chandler's message from that, uh, from that, uh, from that conference. It's dealing with, I think it's called something like uh, talking to white people about inconsistencies when it comes to, to race, race or something like that. Um, but it's, it's really good. It's very helpful. So get educated. Start reading. Start listening uh, to things um, just to kind of broaden your, your perspective and your horizon. Uh, number two, I'd say listen to other voices, particularly minority voices. Uh, listen to uh, people of color whose experience of life in America is probably really different than yours. Um, listen to them without seeking to argue or to demonstrate why um, uh, you're not guilty of the things that they've experienced. Just listen. If you have a friend or a coworker in your sort of sphere of relationship that's African-American or Asian-American or whatever, some kind of an ethnic minority, it'll be awkward, but just go to them and say, hey, I want to learn. Like, can we talk? Um, help me understand your experience. Uh, and I think there's a real good chance that they'll respond well to that, that they want to be understood. Uh, and and if, if there's a, an attitude of humility and of trying to learn, I, I have a feeling that they'll respond and, and, and be willing to, to engage with you. So that, that's a great thing to do. Number three, pray, 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 pray. Uh, pray for God to show you what you can do. God, what does it mean for me to do justice? What does it mean for me to uh, grow in this particular area? Um, even ask him, am I blind to something? I'm not sure I feel like I'm blind. Will you show me if I'm blind to something? Because generally if you ask God to show you, he'll show you. And what he shows you is not always very comfortable. But pray. Pray for the people and situations you know about. You know, the nationally publicized ones like George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and the ones that have been bouncing around our news cycles and social media feeds for the last month or so. Uh, pray. Pray for those people, the communities affected, the families affected. Uh, pray for justice. Pray for uh, peace. Um, but, and, but then stuff going on in your own kind of circle of relationship. There's a good chance that you know somebody who experiences, maybe not at the level of something that's being nationally televised, but who experiences some level of marginalization or injustice based on these racial identities. Um, pray about them. Pray for them. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's probably enough on that. I'll send, I'll send you some resources uh, in an email that, that might be a good place to start. And then the final thing that I'd sort of exhort us to as a point of application is seek to show the fruit of the Spirit in all your conversations and comments about these matters. Um, these conversations are fraught with landmines. People feel very strongly about these things. People get very touchy and defensive when you start poking at them. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so we need to be really careful about how we engage these things. And we need to remember that in every word that we say, in everything that we post on Facebook, uh, in every conversation that we have, um, we represent Jesus Christ. And um, we want to do that well. 
we need the spirit of God in us to help us to do that. Um, but, but as you engage with these issues, as you seek to learn, as you seek to have conversations, even if you brave the waters of posting an opinion on Facebook, um, <clears throat> which I myself have done from time to time, um, try to be, uh, godly in how you do it. Don't shout. Um, don't, uh, dismiss people quickly when they have a dissenting opinion. Um, listen carefully, be patient, um, have gentleness and respect as you do it. Our world is so divided and so hostile and so angry. Uh, if, if you enter into this fray, um, please bring the gentleness of Jesus with you, uh, when you, when you enter. So 